You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio. Previously on Family Ghosts. On July 4th, a date that had no meaning to me, except that it was exactly a month short of my eighth birthday, my mother and I landed in JFK Airport. Our six suitcases bulging with rolls of hand-sewn bedding, bags of Sichuanese chili peppers, a cast-iron wok, and her stethoscope. My mother now found herself, at the age of 40, living in a tiny studio apartment in New Haven, Connecticut, with a husband who she soon discovered was carrying on an affair. Within a year and a half, he had left us, and she was faced with eviction. She had less than $200 to her name and spoke little English. Now the two of us became the embodiment of the Chinese phrase, xiang yi wei ming, mutual reliance for life. As ALS gradually paralyzed her while leaving her intellect intact, our years were filled with ICU visits, emergency surgeries, stays in nursing homes, and wrenching conversations with strangers about the logistics of death. Then, in 2014, after my mother could no longer breathe without a ventilator, she was moved to the Henry J. Carter Specialty Hospital in Harlem, which I was told was the only long-term acute care facility in Manhattan that could take her. My mother currently has two aides, Joe and Ying, and needs them to survive in the way she needs the ventilator for her next breath. But she agonizes about the exorbitant costs of full-time help, which Medicare and Medicaid do not cover. The process of making it all work financially is trying and mortifying. When discussing the details with anyone, a friend, a stranger, an insurance rep, I'm afraid of losing face. The phrase comes from Chinese, but the English inadequately conveys the importance of mianzi, self-respect, social standing, which Lu Xun, the father of modern Chinese literature, described as the guiding principle of the Chinese mind. As the COVID lockdown has swept the city, I find out that the health aides she depends on are to be banned from her facility and take to Twitter to publicize my despair. But this personal plight as a daughter unexpectedly attracts the attention of Chinese nationalists. Your mother will be dead, ha ha. 1.4 billion people wish for you to join her in hell, ha ha. From WALTFM and PRX, you're listening to Family Ghosts. I'm Sam Dingman, and this is the second chapter of Jiang Fan's story, Motherland. If you missed chapter one, Make sure you go back and listen to that before you tune into this week's show, which begins right now. My mother first learned about COVID-19 from watching Chinese TV news. In her pressure-regulated bed, she spends 20 hours a day toggling between CCTV broadcasts and mawkish drama series. When I told her about how the early spread of the virus had been covered up in China, she was skeptical. News from me is suspect, because I'm a member of the Western media. To her, my job has value only because a few people have told her that they've heard of the magazine I write for and because some important people, 
people much more important than she, have deemed my writing fit for publication. Whenever I inform her that I'm traveling to report on China, as I did last year when I went to cover the Hong Kong protests, she laboriously blinks out the message, do not against China. This is what my mother has been urging since I became a writer. This is what my mother has blinked out with growing intensity since Donald Trump started talking about the China virus. One night in early March of 2020, when the pandemic still felt like a distant tragedy happening to others, I read that 13 residents at a nursing home in Washington state had been killed by the virus and that 70 of its 180 employees had developed symptoms. I lay in bed waiting for morning and at 7 o'clock called the nurse's station on my mother's floor. My tone was solicitous as I explained that I was Yali Kong's daughter and asked if the nurses could make sure to wear masks and wash their hands before tending to her. The woman on the line replied that she couldn't tell the other nurses what to do, and neither can you. As she replaced the receiver, she made a remark to someone nearby that thudded in my ear. She's telling us what to do, but she's the one who's Chinese. Throwing my coat on over my pajamas, I rushed to the hospital, which is a a five-and-a-half-minute walk from my apartment. At the entrance, there were uniformed guards and a notice that said, Effective immediately. All visitation for patients and residents is temporarily suspended. Something about my face caused one security guard to apologize. It's state policy, he said. It can't be helped. I called Ying and Joe. It was a Friday, the day they were supposed to rotate their shifts. It takes Joe two hours to get to Carter from her home in Queens, which she shares with her son's family and in-laws. I wanted to make sure she hadn't already left. Knowing that losing a week's income would worry her, I feebly muttered something about how the pandemic had caught us all off guard. Then I called Ying and begged her to stay with my mother in the hospital for another week. After I assured her, groundlessly, that the facility would likely reopen in a week, she agreed to stay. With the hospital closed to visitors, the only way I could communicate with my mother was through FaceTime. She is often in severe pain, and without me there to badger the hospital staff about minute changes in her insulin dosage or the timing of her pain medication, she cried more and slept less. This meant less sleep for Ying, too. For years, I have had to mediate between my mother and the aides, between the aides and the hospital nurses, between my mother and the nurses. But a phone screen could not possibly accommodate all the subtleties needed to allay my mother's fears. I was useful, really, for only one thing, calling the nurse's desk to explain conflicts as they arose among multiple aggrieved parties. But I didn't actually know any of the names of the relevant parties. Although my mother always remembers which nurse has how many children and who works deftly enough to press air bubbles out of her gastric tube, neither she nor Ying, who speaks no English, can remember anyone's name. Instead, they use nicknames, usually based on the nurse's appearance. But at the height of the pandemic, new nurses arrived on the ward, none of whom I'd ever seen. Once, in the middle of the night, I received a call from Ying debriefing me on the misconduct of an old donut. 
An old donut? I asked, my voice still enveloped in sleep. Yes, she gave your mother the wrong medication. An old donut gave my mother the wrong medication? I sat up. It's definitely old donut, not mo money, she said. I rubbed my eyes. They're the only two on duty. Your mother thinks one of them gave her the wrong medication in her sleep. I called the nurse's desk. No one answered. I called Ying back, got the name of the medication in question, and assured my mother that a stool softener was not likely to cause lasting damage. By then, my mother had spelled out a string of nicknames, including Meng Lu, the Chinese shorthand for Marilyn Monroe, and Prinkles, my mother's attempt at freckles, and regaled me with their every misdeed and blunder. It was after 5 a.m. when I hung up. Pre-pandemic, my visits could relieve tensions between Ying and my mother. Now, they were locked in a room together, armed with nothing but glares. On video chat, I emphasized our enormous gratitude to Ying for staying and admonished my mother to be mindful of her exhaustion. Privately, I pleaded with Ying for forbearance. But not long afterward, Ying sent me a note in her tenuous, slanted hand, relaying a message blinked out by my mother, which included the line, She like three-year-old. Because Ying doesn't speak English, she had no idea that she had painstakingly transcribed a list of her own flaws. This was a step too far. On video chat that evening, I warned my mother that for her own sake, she had to behave. And then, in English, I said, Remember what it was like when you were working? I made sure I didn't say the word housekeeper. Remember how it came down to respect? Alluding to our past in front of a family outsider made me go rigid, but it had to be said. In our Connecticut days, respect was a word my mother fastened on, as if uttering this piece of English vocabulary in private could solve our public predicament. After a day of scrubbing, cleaning, washing, and folding, she was full of recrimination toward everyone who had demeaned her. At first, it was the adults of a household she served, then the children, who she insisted had copied their parents' haughty expressions of contempt. Then one day, my mother rebuked me for being just like them. You think you're like them because of your English and your fancy school, she said, but you're nothing. Nothing but a housekeeper's daughter. Family Ghosts will continue in a moment. In the months after my mother received her ALS diagnosis, I would sometimes conduct an experiment. In bed, after a deep breath, I would will my body to be completely still. The sensation was like pausing in the middle of a dark forest and hearing the ambient noise of birds and leaves for the first time. This is what it feels like to be my mother, I would think, to be imprisoned in your body. When the lockdown was announced in New York, I thought about this experience occurring on the scale of an entire city as all infrastructure and commerce ground to a halt. My mother was now incarcerated in a body that was confined in a sealed facility, which was trapped inside a lockdown city. 
As the world outside her hospital grew more cataclysmically unbearable, it became very important to me to curate her perception of it. On the day that a hospital where she'd once been treated lost 13 patients to COVID-19, I jabbered on about the new zucchini recipe I discovered online. What good would it do to tell her that if she were to be infected, she would almost certainly die and that I would not be allowed at her bedside? Most days, my mother said only two things. One, do not against China. And two, you still have job? The pandemic did nothing to lessen her reverence for hierarchy. For her, deference was a precondition of living, and never more so than when precarity loomed. One evening, reading on my phone that more stringent lockdown orders could soon be in place, I realized that I was out of rice and late in mailing my rent check. I grabbed the trash and headed out to the street. Then my phone rang. It was Ying, telling me that she was no longer permitted to cross the hall to the kitchen. As I stood on the sidewalk, I heard a man say, fucking Chinese. Only after he'd gone did I realize I was holding the garbage can lid like a shield. That night, I tweeted about the incident. It was an act of exposure that my mother would have frowned upon. Where's your bruise, she would say, if I complained about being mocked at school. If an incident does not physically harm you, it shouldn't register. But why had I felt pinned to that tableau in which the man's words seemed more real than my body? To assert that it had happened was the only way I could wrest the moment away from the stranger. A few days after family members were shut out of Carter, I called the patient relations department to ask if the virus had entered the facility and what measures could be taken to protect patients. When no one answered, I contacted the CEO at the time, David Weinstein. There wasn't much he could tell me, but he gave me his cell number, and a couple days later, we took a walk in a park next to the hospital. Weinstein, who is in his 60s, said that he had been in the nursing home business for three decades and that his mother lived in one. Terrible timing, he told me from behind two layers of masks. The healthcare system was broken and both our mothers were caught up in it. When I tweeted about my mother's predicament, various friends in the healthcare industry weighed in. Some said that I should consider removing her from the facility. Part of being a regular at hospitals is always to have a plan B. So I started to think about what this would involve. I got the numbers of respiratory specialists, respiratory equipment companies, hospital equipment companies. The dearth of ventilators alarmed me. Even if I managed to procure one, I would need to be trained to use it. I would have to find health aides and respiratory aides who would be almost impossible to recruit at a time like this. And on the off chance that I did accomplish all of this, where would I put her? My apartment barely accommodated my meager furnishings. Plan A, meanwhile, was to make sure that Carter would do his absolute best for my mother. I'd offered to arrange a food delivery for the staff, around 400 people, in order to save them trips to the market. Now I called Weinstein, who listed some food staples that would be useful. I contacted grocery stores, but most had set quotas on items like milk and bread. Others wouldn't deliver. 
I finally found a wholesaler who could provide what we needed and launched a bare-bones online funding drive to support the hospital. When the shipment arrived, 156 loaves of bread, 1,200 eggs, 50 quarts of milk, 100 pounds of peanut butter, 625 apples, 160 pounds of bananas, Weinstein sent me pictures, and some of the nurses thanked me. It felt good to help, and it was sanity-preserving for me to have a task to focus on. But I was aware of what I was doing. Ingratiating myself with the institution in the hope that my mother, if it came to it, might receive some sort of preferential treatment. I thought of my mother's gifts of medicine to my teachers in Chongqing, and the embarrassing results when she tried to wheedle my American teachers into giving me more homework. I was sent home with an admonishing letter. America was an entirely different system with its own levers and gears, and I was better placed to operate them than she had been. I was about 13 when I hatched a plan to save us. I would divide myself into a Chinese self and an American one. At home, I was the dutiful Confucian daughter. At school, a dedicated student of clenched politesse and wasp pieties. I sincerely thought that I could slip in and out of these different versions of myself. They were like costumes, and if sewn and crafted with sufficient skill, they would help us keep going, my mother and me. There was only one problem. I didn't know that a person capable of engineering multiple identities was not necessarily a person who could control the borders between them. In my diary from that time, a present from my mother's employer, which had a Degas ballerina on the cover. I gave voice to emotions powered by all the imposters who took up residence inside me. My deepest emotions, a crush on a boy I met at the library, the hatred for the spoiled children my mother served, my irritation with my mother, my secret ambition one day to write the great American novel centered on the itinerant lives of a Chinese mother and daughter, were buried in fictional characters that grew out of an inability to reconcile myself to myself. In early April, David Weinstein and I were planning a second round of groceries when I saw a missed call from Carter. When I managed to reach patient relations the next morning, a woman cordially informed me that some Carter patients had contracted COVID. How many? I asked. A few. Do we know how it was contracted? No. Are the patients on my mother's floor? I was told I could not be privy to this information, but that in the event that my mother tested positive, I would be informed. Well, has she been tested? No. Will she be? Rather than answer my question, the woman said that all companions of patients would have to leave by 4 p.m. that day. I explained my mother's condition and her dependence on her aides. I asked if an exception could be made. No, not possible. Even if she's not safe without a companion, I asked? That would be for the doctor to decide. I tried one more tack. Could I withdraw her from the hospital? She hesitated. Technically, yes, she said, but given how much equipment my mother needed, it was unlikely that I'd be able to get her out of Carter in less than two weeks. So much for plan B. And I had another realization. 
losing the aid might be no less disastrous for my mother than contracting the virus. She had survived nearly a decade since her diagnosis. The average is three to five years. And the care that the aides provide, turning and suctioning her, is almost certainly integral to this longevity. The next hours were spent on the phone, calling everyone I could think of. It was going on 4 p.m. when I found myself talking with a nurse who had occasionally been the object of my mother's stern, blinked-out criticism. Young, listen to me, she said. I expected her to chastise me for my incessant pestering. Instead, the line went quiet for a second. I've got you, she said. I know better than anyone how much your mother needs her aid. We want her to stay too, she said. For what seemed like the first time that day, I drew a breath. I called a concerned friend to tell him that things would be okay. But another call beeped in. It was the nurse again, and there was hesitation in her voice. The medical director had overwritten her. I'm sorry, she said. I tried phoning Weinstein without success. But even as I did so, I felt that there was something calculating in the attempt to reach him, as if I were calling in the debt of bread, milk, and peanut butter. What was I hoping for but some last-minute stay of execution? Five minutes before Ying was due to be kicked out, I was on FaceTime with her, desperately trying to reassure my mother, whose face was creased and gray. The shame of this moment, I felt, needed to be remembered. It was then that I took the screenshots that later spread across Chinese social media. In the far corner of the frame, Ying was wiping her eyes. Then I heard the security guards. There's a translator here, Ying said in Chinese. She's saying I have to go. This isn't humane, I shouted in English. I threatened legal action, bartered, begged. But the people who could hear were beyond the reach of persuasion. I heard Ying cry out to my mother, Ayi, auntie, and stayed on the line with her as she was escorted out. By the time she emerged at the front door, crying helplessly, I was there to meet her. She was still wearing her slippers. I don't remember how many times that night I called the nurse's station on my mother's corridor. At one point, a kind nursing aide unable to bear the sight of my mother crying for an eighth straight hour, used her cell phone to facilitate a brief FaceTime conversation between us. I also got some advice from the head nurse. Try to get in touch with Mitchell Katz, the president of New York City Health and Hospitals. Seeing that he had an active Twitter account, I tweeted at him, appending one of the screenshots that I had taken of my mother's distress. I knew that I was exploiting our private trauma, and making a performance out of the kind of emotion that my mother and I had spent our lives hiding. But saving face would not rescue my mother. That night, I received a text from an unknown number. It was not Mitchell Katz, but Yu Lin Niu, a New York State assemblywoman whose district includes Manhattan's Chinatown. She had seen the photos on Twitter and wanted to know what she could do to help. Then I heard from Brian Benjamin, a state senator whose district includes Harlem, and from a prominent Twitter personality who knew Mitchell Katz and offered to text him for me. Early the next morning, I got a call from patient relations. The woman's voice was newly tentative, 
and she asked if I would be available for a Zoom conference. Weinstein, the medical director, and Carter's head of PR informed me that my mother's aide would be allowed back after all. There was no real explanation, but my impromptu Twitter campaign had borne fruit. And, I had to admit, so did my association with The New Yorker. Was this how power worked? Once Ian called me from the hospital, confirming that she was there with my mother, I fell into a stone-like sleep. When I finally woke, I could not tell if it was night or day, and was seized by an anxiety so tight that I felt as if I were being held underwater. I began frantically groping around my bed, and as fragments of a dream returned, I realized that I was looking for my mother. In the dream, she is on a stretcher being loaded into an ambulance, a scene I've witnessed many times. But the bed they put her on is too narrow, and she tumbles off. As she falls, her body, so frail that it requires multiple tubes to supply its vital organs, becomes more fragile still, until it turns to porcelain. She shatters into a thousand shards on the ground. It's fine, it's fine, I assure myself. I can still pick her up. As long as I gather all the pieces, I can puzzle her back together. I do not anticipate that the pieces will grow smaller and lighter until they float aloft in the wind, until I am chasing a sheet of sand. I am running now and inexplicably carrying my diary. In the end, I'm able to catch only a single grain of sand on the tip of my finger. Mom, I keep shouting at my finger, terror-stricken that I will lose this last speck of her. The only place I can think of storing it is between the pages of my diary. Our story continues after the break. Ghost family, I hope you're enjoying the second installment of Motherland by Jayong Fan. I was drawn to this piece because it's so deeply felt and eloquently rendered. You can feel how carefully Jayong chose every word in this story to depict the tortures and triumphs of she and her mother's entwined journeys. I can only imagine how difficult it was to write and rewrite this story until she felt like it was exactly right. But, you know, I'm just as fascinated by artists like Jayoung, who are capable of such considered storytelling, as I am by artists like the one that's featured in this week's Kindred Spirits exclusive. Kindred Spirits exclusives are bonus episodes of our show that are only available to our supporters on Patreon, who support the work we do here at WALTFM with a monthly donation of just $5. In exchange, Kindred Spirits get access to conversations like the one I was just alluding to, which is with singer-songwriter Marshall York, who once challenged himself to write 31 original songs in 31 days for the entire month of January. It's kind of the opposite end of the creativity spectrum from a piece like Jayoung's, which she labored over for a long time. I talked to Marshall about his project and asked him to perform a few of those 31 original songs, and that interview is available this week in our Patreon feed, along with an ad-free version of the episode that you're listening to right now. We couldn't make family ghosts without the support of the kindred spirits. So if you have the means, please consider joining them today at patreon.com slash family ghosts. And thank you.
The day after Ying returned to the hospital, I got a message on Twitter from someone I didn't know. Dear Jia Yang, I believe you have been targeted on Chinese social media. See pictures. Please take those threats seriously. Keep safe and take care. I'd been on Twitter long enough to be familiar with the platform's tendency to magnify opposition and heighten vitriol. It wasn't uncommon for attacks to be personal and vicious, but I usually paid them little attention. This was on a different scale. Replies were arriving faster, devoid of context. I never know what happiness is until I see your sobbing bitch face. Authoritarianism rescues the injured and saves life. Democracy takes the life of your bitch mother. Brown-nosers will brown-nose until they have nothing, an attractive young woman whose bio read Born in China wrote. Many people use the abbreviation NMSL, which perplexed me until I googled it. It stands for 你妈死了, a common insult in Chinese, and one with particular relevance to me. Your mother is dead. A startling number of people wish that I had a fatal case of the coronavirus. At the beginning of the pandemic, I had read that a virus is neither dead nor alive and replicates only in the shelter of a host organism. I began to think of Jiayang Fan as viral, not in a social media sense, but in a biological one. The calamitous state of the world and certain random mutations in the story had made it unexpectedly contagious. My original posts had served their purpose. Now they were serving the purposes of others. I had unwittingly bred a potent piece of propaganda. Corners of the Chinese internet buzzed with theories about my motivation. I was slandering China in exchange for American citizenship. No, I was after fame and fortune. When a nationalist publication wrote a public letter offering to donate a brand new ventilator to save my mother's life, to combat evil with kindness, it was presumed an ingrate like me would try to find fault with the machine. I was besieged on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Many people on Twitter seemed to have come from the Chinese platforms. Sometimes, when a new crop of assailants descended, they would be hailed as soldiers come to do battle with the enemy, Jia Yang Fan. None of this felt quite real. I received notifications of attempts originating in China to hack my Apple password, but I did not fear for my personal safety. My mother's voice echoed in me. Where's your bruise? But soon... Seemingly everyone I'd ever encountered in China messaged me articles with a screenshot of my mother. My aunt forwarded me a message that a friend had shown her. What Jia Yang Fan has inflicted upon her mother is worse than any disease, the author lamented. How could a daughter so wretchedly trample her mother's good reputation? My aunt said that many acquaintances had written her notes like this and that they made her heart hurt. My actions, even if they took place on the other side of the world, had ramifications, she wanted me to know. They affect my daughter and your uncle, too. The family name was at stake. In a chat thread she sent me, someone with the screen name Bering Strait, who had known my maternal grandfather, recalled that he had been a loyal follower of Mao in the Red Army. 
it is a good thing he is dead not to be party to this humiliation, Bering Strait observed. Gradually, an intimate history of my mother's life came into view. Reading through such discussions was like wandering into rooms of a past that my mother had locked away long ago. Someone else knew that my mother, as a child, had been informally promised to a neighbor's son, as was sometimes the custom. Her enthusiasm for learning English in college, to the point of forgetting to eat and sleep, was recounted, and cast in a newly suspect light. Had she been plotting her escape to America all those years ago? For all her diligence and beauty, she, quote, was known as the goddess among the male comrades, end quote. She was evidently an incompetent mother. A child's wrongdoing is a parent's failing. A deeply Confucian adage was a sentiment evoked time and again to explain my mother's fate. Many were worried that this airing of our family ugliness might taint their own reputations. Anyone who had even a passing affiliation with the institutions of my mother's youth her army battalion, college class, hospital ward, bemoaned the possibility that their manzi could be compromised. For all my aunt's frustration with me, she was insistent that my mother should never know the way she was being discussed. It would eviscerate her, she told me. That, I knew, was true. My mother had lost touch with many people who knew her in China, precisely because she hadn't wanted to mar this last preserve of dignity. This wellspring of nostalgic pride, which had privately nourished her in the years of deprivation in the U.S., was something I had desecrated, an even more unpardonable offense than my political betrayal. As a former classmate wrote, no matter her inadequacies as a parent, it must be said that Jia Yang Fan is a far greater criminal for killing her own mother. What my persecutors do not know is that my mother once accused me of killing her. I was 15 and home from boarding school. Her outburst was, of all things, in response to my request to see a dermatologist. The area around my belly button had been itching uncontrollably. I later found out that an allergy was to blame, and my only relief was to scratch until the small, weeping blisters turned my flesh into a wet, raw mess. My mother told me that it was a matter of hygiene, but the more I soaped and scrubbed, the worse it got. The idea of a doctor was out of the question, because, according to my mother, it was not a life-or-death matter. But I was less afraid of death than of the mockery of my classmates, some of whom had found the blood seeping through my shirt grotesque. And for once, I refused to be talked down. My mother stopped in the middle of folding laundry and appraised me with an icy calm. I just want to see a doctor, I said, my eyes becoming wet. Stop the act. Dirty. This is what people call you, a dirty Chinese pig. Confusion momentarily superseded indignation. No one had ever called me that. It would be years before I wondered if someone, an employer, the children of an employer, had called her that. I looked at her face, so warped with rage that I could not see my mother in it. It's reductive to compare a mother with a motherland, 
but I have since wondered if the intensity of her rage resembled the emotions of my anonymous online detractors. The fact that many couched their accusations in the language of familial estrangement, your American daddy doesn't want to rescue garbage like you, lent an unmistakable intimacy to my ostensibly political betrayal. The anger seemed to arise from an aggrieved awareness of its futility, a primal wound in search of a mother's touch. The flip side of surging triumphalism and expansive aspiration is the enduring, ineluctable ache of loss. This much my mother and I knew better than anyone else. I do not believe that the corrosive toll of those emotions was ever evident to my mother as she rode through them, dogged and alone. Survival had forced her to conceal more and more of herself so that eventually the most important truths were the ones she kept from herself. The hours of stunned silence just after she received her final diagnosis in a hospital in New York felt not dissimilar to our arrival in the city two decades earlier when all we could do was grope in astonishment around our new reality. As her doctor, an impassive man with an Irish accent, gave her the news, my mother fixed her attention firmly on her toes. It wasn't until we were on the sixth train, heading downtown, that she spoke. The plan had been to have dinner in Chinatown, but now she asked, could we go see the World Trade Center? It was the first time either of us had ever alluded to 9-11, We were U.S. citizens now, but when the towers fell, we'd been resident aliens. Are the broken buildings still there? My mother now asked. I said that I thought not, though I didn't know for sure. It was somewhere on that subway ride, among a tangle of strangers, that my mother instructed me not to share the news of her illness. I have always remembered the request as explicit, but it now occurs to me that she didn't need to ask. I could always read her thoughts as they passed between us, in furtive glances. When the image of my mother's face whizzed around Chinese social media, the reactions it aroused bore out her cynicism. The world was every bit as cruel and indifferent as she had always suspected. But I hung on to the irrational notion that unless my mother's eyes encountered the abuse, it could not be real that at least in the hospital room, where she would likely live out the rest of her life, there existed a world in which she had a measure of control. But late one morning in April, Ying sent me a link to a story on WeChat with a short audio message. Your mother wants to know, is this you? I'm reading your mother the article right now. I felt that familiar prickling in my nerve endings, the constant urge to manage the situation. But I didn't call Ying back and beg her not to read the article. Instead, after a day of doing nothing, I went for a walk. Outside, there was a wan, speckled moon and a cool clarity in the night air. I stood in a playground near abandoned swings and gazed up to the fourth floor of my mother's hospital and the darkened box of her window. I don't like to imagine the emotions that coursed through my mother as she lay there defenseless, listening to what had been written about us. I don't like to think about her reappraising the daughter whom she both knew and did not know. When Ying texted again, I knew it would be a message from my mother. 
I feared being misunderstood by someone whose life was so kneaded into my own, whose choices had both bound and liberated me, and whose words, even when blinked with the last functioning muscles of her body, could utterly undo me. My mother's message was brief and pointed. It contained a Chinese idiom. A clean body needs no washing. That is, if you're not guilty of anything, you have nothing to atone for. In English, she then added, I am survive. Family Ghosts is hosted, produced, written, edited, and mixed by me, Sam Dingman. Motherland was written and read by Jiang Fan and first appeared in the pages of The New Yorker magazine, where she's a staff writer. Check the show notes for a link to Jiang's complete archive of writing for the magazine. Our show art is by Teddy Blanks, and our theme song is by Luis Guerra. Family Ghosts comes out every other week. And if you're looking for something to listen to in the off weeks between new episodes, may I recommend Fisher Family Ghosts. It's a recap podcast for the HBO dramedy Six Feet Under, which recently celebrated its 20th anniversary, and which, if you're familiar with the show, it won't surprise you to learn, was a source of great inspiration for this very podcast. Every week, my partner Adrian and I watch an episode of Six Feet Under and then talk about the ways the themes, characters, and story influence our own approaches to storytelling, not to mention our perceptions of our own families. Find Fisher Family Ghosts wherever you're listening to this. And we'll be back in two weeks here on Family Ghosts with a brand new story. Thank you for listening, Ghost Family. I'll talk to you then.